This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. Stephanie Faye Frank offers neuroscience education that leads organization-wide mindset shifts and innovation through her online videos, podcasts, and her consulting services. She uses her award-winning research in neuroscience and fieldwork as a counselor and educator and consultant to maximize our brain's creative power. She implements interactive strategies to bring these concepts to life within the classroom. For more information, visit MindsetNeuroscience.com. In part one of my interview with Stephanie Faye Frank, we discuss how the factory model of education and our behaviorist stimulus response approach to teaching is holding our students back from being able to compete within the new connection economy. We discuss the importance of running our classroom like an innovation lab, where failing fast is important and taking risks through vulnerability and emotional labor is key to developing the adaptability our students need to be successful in the future. Stephanie Faye Frank, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you. Me too. So I'd love to start with this concept of the factory model of industrialized school. Can you describe a little bit about what that means and how it might connect to students in terms of their level of success and their need to fit into a certain mold? Yeah, well, uh, you know, we have we have a, a few different theories of, of where it all comes from. There's different countries, too, that have different models that came from like a colonial era. But generally speaking, what we see, at least in, in the U.S. in particular, is that um, you know, during the industrialized era, we we needed to have factory workers. So a big component of education was to help people, you know, have jobs at that time. And at that time, success meant getting a job at a factory. That was success. That was the way that that generation was going to provide stability for their families. Um, and so what happened during that time is they they really there were certain um, standards and and even if you could you could even say values that were really honored at that time that worked well in a factory and some of those values were compliance and obedience and standardization and some way to manufacture things in mass quantities that were identical um, and that there was no deviation from that. And so the mindset of that entire era was to build those values into the people because that's how they would be successful in a factory. And so school really became uh, a way to do that. And if you look at school now, uh, even now, it hasn't really progressed from that. If you look at even how it looks, there there is a very factory feel to the building, the way it's mm. constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you see in, in other kinds of more modern evolving design, there's a lot more curves, there's a lot more light and you don't see that in these there's it's that the even the building itself looks quite a bit like a factory there's a bell that rings for people to switch stations or take breaks just like on a factory floor 
And in a factory, there's a, a foreman, and that foreman is the person that holds the standard, holds the rules, and makes sure that no one falls out of line. And so that's really, if you, you can kind of see how those values were really imbued and embedded into the school. Um, and so the, the teacher was the exclusive holder of knowledge and standards. And things, because we were trying to get into this mass air, this kind of mass production type of style of economy, but also society... Um, it was really much about not deviating from a norm. And so there's all these norms that were created and standardized standardization of really everything. And mm -hmm. so that kind of, you know, just created a type of a mindset that there are norms that we need to follow and deviation from that is not, um, valuable. It's not, uh, what's another word, not welcome, not appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, and what we see, I mean, from a, there's a, a few other things that kind of came also towards the end of that era, but the behaviorist model um, also came online um, in like the 1950s around there. And what we saw from, from that time was that um, there was this idea of this stimulus response model. And so they were, you know, it's not, it's, it's still kind of correlated to the factory model in the sense that um, people were trying to kind of standardize behavior. And so something that was coming online during older eras was also this idea of the behaviorist model. And this model was basically saying that you can give anybody any kind of stimulus and you will get the same response back. Mm. And they were doing this because they were looking at pigeons and pigeons don't have a huge amount of degrees of freedom that they're aware of. So you can kind of use punishment and you can use reward. And generally speaking, you'll get very similar behaviors uh, from pigeons. Um, so they try to apply this to humans and, and in, to a certain extent, you can get very short-term outcomes using this kind of conditioning, like a fear uh, punishment-based kind and the reward, you know, reward response. But what that also did was it, it basically made it so that we almost started to look at curriculum the same way, that you just feed people curriculum and all the responses should be the same and there should be no kind of variation to that because it, the curriculum is the stimulus and so everybody should respond the same way. But what we know now from just becoming more intelligent as scientists and researchers and just knowing intuitively about humans is that we are way more complex than that. And so a more modern evolved model is called the stimulus organism response model, which mm -hmm. is that you can offer a stimulus, whatever that is, whether it's a math curriculum, a formula, whatever, um, but the organism matters a lot and the existing uh, architecture of the organism matters. So the different structures we have in place um, genetically, but also just in terms of like, you know, brain structures, experience, and also the temporary physiological state of an organism matters. So let's say if we're talking about humans, their stress level in a very specific moment matters for learning. So you can't just offer a stimulus and expect every student to have the same response because their physiological state in that moment matters a lot. Um, when they're feeling defensive, when they're feeling um, anxious, when there's stuff coming from their home environment, there's not even going to be the same structures in their brain online in a given moment because of that. And so we really are have to move away from that very old factory model you know, from the standardization point, but also that stimulus response model. That's a very old behaviorist response, uh, behaviorist kind of system of looking at things. So 
that's what, uh, you know, we're seeing from people who are really dedicated to innovating learning. We're seeing this idea of the personalized learning. We're seeing, uh, you know, that kind of idea, like even the project-based learning, because Mm -hmm. what that allows for classrooms to do is to acknowledge more of that variety um, Mm -hmm. of you know, the existing uh, neural architecture that's coming from students, uh, which I can touch on really quickly in, in a little while if you want, but yes. also the the tempora- temporary physiological state um, of each student. So, right. yeah. So, yeah. So we're in an exciting era. I feel like there are people that are just seeing like, wow, we can't keep doing it the way we're doing, yes. doing it. It's just not honoring the way human brains work. Yes. And I guess that's the other piece I'd like to touch on briefly before we move on to two elements of how we can actually deviate from that existing model. Why now? Why is it important to to get away from this standardized approach to education? Why is it important? We are moving away from the industrial era of the economy. We're moving into there's so many different words that are coming up. We can say there's a connection economy, um, the attention economy. There's also the experience experience economy. And so what the these new economies are, are showing us is that because humans are so different and not standardized or standardizable, that's a word, <laughs> we can't we can't prepare for jobs that are like that. So uh, first of all, artificial intelligence is is something that is taking away jobs that are very rote and automated and monotonous um, because, you know, it, computers and that kind of program, programming is very good for that. And it actually allows us to be more creative because it frees us up for that. But it's changing the economy, first of all. So we are moving into an era where it matters more to have what Seth Godin calls emotional labor, mm. where we figure out how to... Um, take the the very unique perspective of each person we work with um, and to look at how to connect on on those human levels and also how to innovate. And so if we stay in the class the factory model of school, we're not we're not allowing ourselves to you know color outside the lines and experiment and attempt new things. And that's going to be very damaging for students entering these completely new economies that we have never before experienced. And it's, it's changed the entire landscape of job markets, of how we connect, and it's moving at such an incredibly rapid pace, and it just gets faster because even just the speed of information, very obviously, is, has increased so much. So back then, you know, in, you know, many, many years ago, several generations ago, information didn't travel that quickly. And so there wasn't so many different frontiers to navigate for a human but we now just virtually have to navigate so many different kind of frontiers or territories in terms of culture and who we're speaking with that we have to be way, way, way more flexible, dynamic and innovative in each moment in order to just survive in terms of economy and the jobs that are going to be available mm-hmm. to us and that won't be taken over by artificial intelligence, but also in terms of how much we are intermingling and interconnecting. There are fewer borders like nationally. So we're intermixing with people on such a rapid level that if we don't understand how to innovate and be dynamic and flexible in each moment, it's going to be really hard to even have relationships, but jobs and and that kind of innovation that would happen from that. So Mm. it's just a, a model that is pretty, will be very damaging for people. And, you know, I work with different tech companies and and bigger companies. And part of what they're seeing is that 
there are a lot of people who are coming into their organizations, but they're very, very afraid of making mistakes because they've been brought up in this standardized model. And so they're so scared to experiment. They're scared to not know something. They're scared to go into any kind of area that's outside their comfort zone and, you know, do something different that might fail and they Mm -hmm. might get wrong. But the thing is, all of the innovation labs want people to do that. They Mm -hmm. want them to fail fast, attempt Mm -hmm. and experiment and fail really quickly. And so that mindset isn't there. There's this real fear of failure and fear of mistakes. And a lot of companies are seeing that. And that's why we hear a lot about this idea of growth mindset, which Mm -hmm. is trying to get people to be less afraid of failure. So it's also, yeah, you know, it's just translating into people not being ready for what is expected of them in a lot of these new innovative um, environments where they do need to experiment and make mistakes and fail. And that means not having a standardized answer to anything. Right. And I think that's exactly, exactly right. That whole idea that without this ability to, to innovate and to do things that might not work, that really, it sort of arrests any, any possibility for creativity and really that creative exploration is what demonstrates real learning, right? And, and exactly. That, yeah, that application to some of the things that you might have been learning, say, in a classroom or, or even within within the work that you do and seeing, will this work? Will it not? How can I tweak it? But it's very, very difficult exactly. to do in a situation where you don't feel safe to do that. Yes. So, yeah. so that brings us to this concept of growth mindset. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what growth mindset is within the context of this concept of Carol Dweck's exploration of incremental versus entity-based learning approaches? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people actually don't know that that was her original wording. So um, she eventually coined these ideas of growth versus fixed because it was a little more just easier to kind of understand, I think. But originally her research looked at um, just ways that children learn and how they start to build theories about things. She calls them theory theorists. (laughs) Uh, So children from a very young age start to try to create what's called causal inferences. So trying to figure out, okay, well, this happened, so why would that have happened? And one area where they start to do that is, you know, I got an answer right. I wonder why I got this answer right. And it Mm -hmm. starts to build this theory about intelligence. And so they started doing different, um, you know, experiments. And they started to see that there were some students that seemed to have what she at that point called an incremental mindset. And some had this more idea of an entity mindset. And so the entity mindset was this idea that um, it was like they were starting to see that intelligence is this entity and you have a certain amount and that's all you get and there's nothing that can be added from or taken away from that that's just it's a kind of this entity a defined thing that you can have whereas an incremental mindset where she saw it with other students was this idea that it's something that's always developing so ing is an important verb tense there it's like you can develop at any point your intelligence it can grow and it and it can expand mm. and um she gathered that just based on partly their answers to to different questions but another area where she saw where this would emerge was through um different kinds of language that they they would experiment with so one in a few of these studies they would do something where they used non-generic or generic language. And so they had, uh, for example, students look at a dolphin and they would say this, um, they would, the one sentence they would use would be, this 
dolphin has fat under her belly versus dolphins, plural, have fat under their plural belly. Mm. And what they found was just by manipulating the language in that way, there was a different attribute to why they would have fat. And so when they heard the generic statement of dolphins, plural, have fat under their belly, they would uh, make it to be about something innate or genetic and functional. And so their answer would be something like, oh, because they need to float better Mm. or it keeps them warm. Whereas as soon as they heard an individuated statement like that dolphin has fat under her belly, they attributed it to something she had done. So, oh, she ate too much Mm. that day. So it became less innate and genetic. And so they started to play with that. And they noticed that as soon as they did these generic statements, which you could almost call a stereotype, um, before they would play a game, it changed the performance of the students. And generally not for the better when they did the generic. So if they said, boys are better at this game, um, you'd think that the boys would actually do better at the game and they would have an invented game, but they actually didn't. And none of the students, they, they all deteriorated in performance. Hmm. But when they would say that boy plays this game very well, it, the statements afterward reflected, oh, he must have, you know, tried that game a few times. And it almost like freed them up to realize, oh, a- anyone can de- develop at them. Mm-hmm. So, and the interesting part is that um, 40% of the statements that we get before the age of, I think, six are generic statements. That's a lot. So we, as children, we are getting a lot of categorized gen- generic language. So you know, kids are this, adults mm. are this, mm. boys are this, girls are, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and, you know, it's, it's, there's a purpose behind it because it organizes our world. It's helpful to have these categories. But unfortunately, it also creates that kind of, um, that entity or fixed mindset thinking where the, the inference that's made from that, starting from when we're very little, is that, oh, it must be innate. And that's why mm. it's that giant group of unindividuated people. It's just a giant group of people. Yes. So, yeah. And so I think it's um, really, it's really powerful to think about. I think that people have been hearing about growth mindset, fixed mindset, um, and it's becoming a bit of a buzzword. So they're not quite as they don't know about some of that deeper research that it mm-hmm. came from. And I think it's really interesting. And the other piece too, is that, um, there's newer research too, that shows that when we individuate, when we help people individuate, so actually going back to your factory model, um, component too, yeah. when, when people individuate and they really understand that they are unique mm-hmm. and it can be negative qualities or positive, but when they have people think about their very individual preferences or qualities, it actually protects them from something called stereotype threat, which is that when uh, someone is about to perform on a test or any kind of you know performance, if they are triggered to think about a category they belong to, whether it's Asian, female, um, you know, I'm trying to think, young, old, or you know, any mm-hmm. kind of category mm-hmm. that's like on a demographic, you know, thing. That if it's if there are negative stereotypes attached to that, their performance will deteriorate. And they've replicated this quite a few times. So, for example, if a, a female, if she is about to uh, do a math exam and has to mark on the thing female, where there is negative stereotyping that has been built up over time about women not doing as well in math, her performance deteriorates. But as soon as they help, they 
help that person think of very personal things about herself, like unique qualities and preferences, and they individuate, it actually protects her against that threat. So they can still do the the female, you know, check the box thing, but her performance um, goes higher than the performance happens when there's a stereotype. That's just making a lot of of sense to me right now because I think about, say, for example, I mean, standardized tests are still a part of of education, whether we want mm-hmm. it or not. And so the mm-hmm. way that we can frame that as we're setting students up for these standardized tests, if we're reminding them of that that stereotype mm-hmm. or that they belong yeah. to, that that can actually be super detrimental to the outcome of their performance. Yes, very much. So as you've learned, the old model of education celebrated obedience over creativity, promoted stereotyping versus individuality, and resulted in a system that rewarded people for following instructions to spec. The truth is that our students need a different set of skills. They need adaptability, and we can help them to develop it through personalization of education. Listen to the next two episodes with Stephanie Faye Frank, for our deep dive into how to develop growth mindset in our students and how to create classrooms that celebrate adaptability. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.